0: So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the
1: sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with a
0: goal well, of making energy both cheaper, but also completely clean, and so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than The World's well, biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year. But there are still questions about price. Brent
1: crude is down by
0: 4.0. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. special. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. As we move toward a smarter electric grid that incorporates more renewable energy sources, the importance of a large intelligent transmission network is becoming increasingly apparent. We'll talk today about why that's so important and also why it's not happening faster. With us is Ed Craples founder and CEO of the transmission developer EnBarrick. Enbaric is a Boston-based company that specializes in developing large-scale electric transmission systems and microgrid projects of various sizes. Welcome, Ed.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Good afternoon.
0: So we want to talk about the challenges of building electricity transmission projects, but before we get into that, tell us a little bit more about EnBarrick, what kinds of projects you do, and what your personal role is?:
1: I'm happy to do that. We have developed uh, been part of the development of two very innovative, modern transmission projects between New Jersey and New York. Uh, one of them is called Neptune. It's uh, six hundred and sixty megawatts, which is about enough to give power to six hundred thousand families. Um, and it goes from coastal New Jersey into Long Island. It goes under Jones Beach, it's entirely buried, and goes into the middle of Long Island, um, and has been in operation since 2007. The second project is called Hudson. Uh, It connects New Jersey with downtown Manhattan. So next time you uh, go to the show and you see the lights stay on, it's because our project is providing energy to midtown Manhattan.
0: Great. So um, certainly you have some insights about the challenges of of moving energy. And we have in the United States, we have fantastic solar resources in the West. We have amazing wind resources in the Plains. You've got some pretty good wind in the Northeast as well. We need transmission to bring these resources to market in the rest of the country. Is that happening?
1: Uh, It's not happening. It's extraordinarily difficult to build new transmission. Uh, There are three or four reasons to build a big transmission line. One of them that's that's easiest to get permitted is for reliability. So if the regulators believe that a, a project is essential to keep the lights on, it can get built because there is eminent domain that the utility has that can usually make it get built. The second reason is to bring renewables to market, and there the, the building of transmission becomes much more optional, if I can put it that way. It's an elective project, and uh, for reasons that um, have something to do, I think, with the politics of our nation today, those uh, give rise to a tremendous amount of opposition. So most of the large projects dedicated to bringing Midwestern wind to market have failed in recent years. Uh, in the Northeast, uh, we, we're having a little bit more success, but, but uh, the frontier for the Northeast is really offshore wind and that's where a brand new offshore grid will have to be built to bring that wind to market and that is in the next 10 years i think that's the number one project opportunity in the country
0: and then you mentioned there's a third reason
1: the third reason is really for the modernization of the grid Uh, many of the transmission lines are old and need to be replaced but when we begin to think about Wholesale replacement of the grid, that's when you start to talk about microgrids. And the question that uh, a lot of people are asking is a good question do we really need to rebuild the old grid, or do we really need to build a new grid that accommodates uh, distributed energy? microgrids and all the high-tech stuff that companies like Google and Apple and others are coming up with that that allows to use electricity more efficiently.
0: And I do want to ask you about microgrids in a few moments, but let's go back to the, the matter of uh, transmission for re- renewables being optional and encountering opposition. I imagine people could make the argument that the energy from renewables enhances reliability. Could make a reliability case. Is is that have any ground in in the field of decision?
1: Not really. Not not among the the regulators at the state level, especially. I think there's interest in that argument at the federal level, but at the state level, uh, the bar is set very very high. It's very ironic, Jeff. We built the grid for nuclear power and for fossil fuels without asking them to pay for it. Mm -hmm. But in the case of renewables, every change that is uh, necessary, the renewable energy has to pay for it. So I think there's a little bit of an uneven ground um, between the uh, renewables uh, enabling transmission and the transmission we built 20, 30, 40 years ago for these other forms of energy.
0: And so you've mentioned some, um, it sounds like what might be political entrenchment in the regulatory bodies. Is that because of just sort of they're more accustomed to dealing with more traditional sources of energy like fossil fuels and nuclear, or are they connected to those industries in some way? What's going on there?
1: That's part of the reason. But if you think of the power market as a multi-hundred billion dollar industry. There is a constant and ongoing power struggle between the different sectors of the industry. So, in one corner you have the fossil fuels uh, advocates. Natural gas-fired power plants are really dominant in the U.S. power market today. Uh, The nuclear folks um, are having a lot of trouble staying in business because of natural gas. So they're looking for uh, support from the regulators. Renewables are new and therefore more expensive, and they have to pay for their own transmission. So this is all pulling at the willingness of state authorities, mostly state authorities, to finance these different types of projects. So it's very much a power struggle in the power market.
0: Now, there are some people who'd like to see 100% renewables or as close to it as we can get. And there are some experts who think that's possible if we have a robust, flexible, and smart transmission network spread across the whole country. So that, for example, if the wind stops blowing in the plains, you can move some power from solar resources in Nevada or vice versa if the west clouds up. Some think we we can even do without a great deal of energy storage capacity, as long as we have that flexibility in the transmission network. How difficult would that be to do?
1: I think knowing what we know today about storage technology, Jeff, the the more we can use storage, the easier it will be to accomplish that vision. Uh, In any event, that will take 20, 40, 60 years to accomplish. But I think storage is a hugely important part of that solution.
0: So when you say 60 years to accomplish, you mean the development of this kind of a network, nationwide Mm -hmm. network? Yes, I think
1: we have so much money that we would have to invest to accomplish that. We don't have the political will to do it in many of the states uh, of the United States. So even if you had the political will, I think it would take uh, decades to accomplish something as big as that.
0: What would make it go faster?
1: Uh, Federal leadership would help a lot. Um, Right now, uh, we do not have federal leadership that believes that this is a goal worth pursuing. Uh, The scrapping of the Clean Power Plan, which was an a late Obama desire to really put wind behind the sails of wholesale development of renewable energy, that's now a little bit stuck. So what's happening in the United States today with renewable energy is largely fed by the the states, roughly half of them, that believe renewable energy is the future. It's the East Coast, it's the West Coast, it's a few states in the middle.
0: Are there any um, potentially disruptive technology advances that could make things go faster?
1: I think storage is probably the most important disruptive technology advance for the management of the grid. Um, On the energy side, the reduction in cost of offshore wind is equally dramatic, but it, it doesn't manage the grid. It really puts huge amounts of power into the grid from the coastal areas. So my vision for the United States is not so much for the wind from the mid-continent to go to the coasts, it's the wind from the offshore to permeate the coastal states and letting the uh, mid-continent wind sort of stay within the Great Plains.
0: So um, how would storage help develop a transmission network?
1: Well, when when you have uh, an intermittent resource like wind and solar, and California is a wonderful example of that right now, uh, what storage can do, deployed in large scale, is it can store the energy for the times when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. It takes a lot of storage to really be able to play that role, but the cost of storage has come down so much that we we see that as really the next big disruptive technology.
0: Doesn't that seem like it makes transmission less necessary if you locate the storage, you know, just between the power source and the community that's using the electricity?
1: Yes. And the reason that my company does both transmission and microgrids is because 10, 15 years ago, we became aware of this tension between local distributed energy development on the one hand and transmission on the other. We need less transmission in the future, but we need better located and better sited of transmission.
0: Okay. So storage, it sounds like, is going to be particularly important for the mi- on the microgrid front. Yes. All right. So lately, some proposed transmission projects have faltered because of states getting in the way. We've seen some nimbyism, not in my backyard. This seems to be a recurring problem. Um, You've spoken about the political winds not being particularly favorable, but are there sorts of policy reforms that you envision that could rectify that issue?
1: Yes, uh, electricity is unique in not having federal authority to compel states to participate and agree on building an electric transmission line. So it's odd, Jeff, on the one hand, for natural gas and oil, the federal government has the authority to push a line through, through the states and over the states' objections. In electric power, it does not it's an act it's an accident of history
0: mm. um what caused that accident
1: um warfare back in the 1930s between the states that did not want to give this authority to the federal government
0: and do you see any uh any favorable wins at the federal level do you have are there members of congress who are sympathetic you know to the need for more transmission or or you know particular regulators who are progressive in this way
1: I'm an optimist at heart, and I think that the federal regulator uh, an entity called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC, is uh, a group that has uh, is highly professional uh, the current commissioners, uh, most of them appointed by President Trump, are real experts in the field, and I think they are so far doing the things needed to be predictable in the decisions that they make. So when states bring them well-considered transmission ideas, one of ours very recently, uh, FERC, has approved them. So I'm optimistic that the federal government is willing to let the states do what they want to do.
0: What are the trends right now in transmission?
1: I think the trends are away from multi-state and inter-regional transmission, for all the reasons that we've discussed, and towards uh, building transmission that allows an individual state, like New York or New Jersey, to harvest its offshore wind so that it can move more rapidly down the path of renewable energy than it could do if it relied on out-of-state resources. Out-of-state reliance has become a difficult thing.
0: So we're looking at states that are maybe uh, seeking to become more self-sufficient. We could have 50 of those. Is anyone planning ways to eventually connect them up?
1: No, and this is I think the big challenge for FERC. Does it want to proactively encourage the states to connect to one another Right now, I don't see that happening. But as each state optimizes its internal energy system, I think the pressure will build five or 10 years from now to begin to connect and reconnect America. Uh, right now, we're not building a more unified American electric system. We're actually fragmenting a bit.
0: So the Trump administration just uh released an infrastructure streamlining proposal. How was that received by your company and, and your industry?
1: Well, we welcome that. We don't want to shortcut any environmental requirement that's necessary. We're very green and very proactive in the area of renewable energy. But in some cases, the number of years and the amount of money needed to permit even a buried transmission line had become so excessive that we were talking about five, six, seven, eight-year timeframes. Money and investors can't wait that long to deploy their capital. So for the sake of doing that a bit more efficiently, I welcome the Trump Infrastructure Initiative. I think it is overdue.
0: And what about technology advances? You've you've spoken about energy storage, but technology advances... Uh, specific to transmission. Um, Is there anything around the corner that we should watch out for?
1: There is. Um, Buried transmission lines uh, 10 years ago had a certain capacity. Today, we have double that capacity. So if you believe that every transmission line has to be optimally sized so that you only go through the NIMBY headaches once, then the ability of these lines to carry more and more and more energy is really very valuable. Uh, The other big technology change is uh, AC versus DC. This is the old Edison versus Tesla. There are places where DC has a more important part in the American power grid than it has so far.
0: Tell us a little more about that. What are those places and why?
1: Um, I think for offshore wind, especially when you have distances in excess of, say, 60 to 70 miles, you want to use DC. It's less disruptive to the ocean floor. It carries more power per cable than AC. And so, uh, because I'm a believer that we're going to get more and more of our electric energy from offshore, we need to have room for this D.C. technology to come into the market.
0: Now, I believe Ann Baric recently got the green light to build an offshore transmission system that will help Massachusetts develop its offshore wind resources. And offshore must have some different practical challenges. Do you also find that it has unique challenges in the planning and the approvals process?
1: it does because it is um, most of the wind is in federal waters the relevant federal agencies uh include agencies that in the past we didn't have to work with one in particular called BOEM part of the interior department it has authority over leasing space in federal waters that agency is going to be a very important part of making the offshore uh, renewable energy developments work.
0: What's the health of offshore wind right now?
1: In Europe, it's thriving. It's booming. Uh, In the United States, we're really just getting started. The first very small project was just built in Rhode Island called Block Island. It's 27 megawatts. Uh, What New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts are talking about when you put all their numbers together is something on the order of 8,000 megawatts, which is enough power for millions and millions of people.
0: Why is Europe so far ahead of us? Is that because
1: of some structural differences? They saw the need for renewable electricity before we did. Uh, they have energy security issues that EPIC studies, among other places. Uh, Russian gas, for example, is a more difficult uh, energy security problem than we have here in the United States. Our gas is very cheap. Europe's natural gas is very expensive. So for Europe, it's almost a national security Requirement to develop this offshore wind, and they've done a tremendous job in in Europe. Uh, the Germans, the Danes, the Dutch, the Brits, when you put it all together, I think it's now close to 15,000 megawatts, which is a huge number, and they're still going at it.
0: So let's talk a little about microgrids now and the microgrid business. With the growth of distributed energy resources and the smart grid, And also, on the other side of things, increasingly perilous weather events. All sorts of microgrid projects seem advantageous. And there's a lot of different kinds, right? There's You might have a microgrid that supports a hospital or a number of public facilities in a city or a neighborhood or a university. Uh, There's one near here at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Um, Or a data center or a large corporate campus might have its own microgrid, and we've seen some well-publicized examples of that, like with Apple. Outside of those well-publicized examples, are microgrids, are they taking hold? Are they starting to happen on a more widespread basis?
1: I think so. I think so. Uh, One of the areas of greatest interest is in the university sector. So if you consider that a big university like the University of Chicago It has built its electric and its heating system piece by piece over many decades. It has never optimized that system. It has never looked at it as a separate asset. Uh, So increasingly, we in in Amberic, but also in other companies, are having discussions with universities about selling their entire electric and heating systems to third parties. And letting those third parties convert them into something much more modern and much more innovative. Uh, Ohio State sold its entire system a year ago for a billion dollars. So it got a check for a billion dollars. The company that gave it the check has a 30-year contract to essentially rebuild the entire system from scratch. That helps the university meet its sustainability targets. It will make the university more efficient. It will unite the university and the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a microgrid. And How does
0: that company make up its capital investment?
1: It, by by providing a 30-year contract. Um, one way of thinking about it is that the university had been spending this money as part of its operating expense. And every two or three or four years, it would have to make a big investment in something like $100 $200 million. By converting all of that into one big long-term contract for operating costs, it basically gets capital in and makes a long-term operating commitment to pay that company for renovating its energy system.
0: Are you encountering obstacles in the microgrid business? Uh,
1: Not so much. I think it's more the uh, almost infinite variety of things you can do In microgrids so when when you have a microgrid conversation the people who come to the table aren't even the utilities it's typically the technology companies like Google um, like Amazon that have a completely different idea of how to digitally control an energy system than the utilities have so it really is I think the beginning of an enormous change in how the electric system is organized. And it's a real problem for the utilities that don't get on board.
0: So uh, outside of energy storage, which we've already talked about, are there technological advances around the corner or happening right now in microgids that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna use a word that gets a lot of people excited and a lot of people scared, blockchain. So when you think about uh, Bitcoin, what's behind bitcoin is a is a concept for a ledger that is completely secure encrypted uh, safe for people to use the same technology that allows bitcoin to do what it does which is to amass an enormous number of participants outside of the banking system is beginning to be applied in the electric system so there are now small-scale blockchain energy systems that once those become more widely used, I think really represent a different form of organization for electric power than we've ever seen before.
0: What would that look like to, let's say, an electricity user? Would they
1: even know? They would know. They would be uh, a buyer and a seller of electricity all day long. So imagine they have an electric vehicle and they have a water heater, and they have a heating system, uh, and they have a big battery, a Tesla battery on, uh, in their basement wall. That all will be regulated by some app that they have. And the ones who are interested enough to do this can do microtransactions. Uh, I don't need my car for the next three hours, so I'll sell the power from the car into the system. Right now, you can't do that. But very soon, that's going to become ubiquitous. And it really will change the efficiency with which people use electricity.
0: Ed, is there anything else we should have asked you about?
1: Boy, that's an open-ended question. Um, Is there enough money for all this? Uh, And the answer is yes, but it's organized in different ways. So my company's investor is the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. It's a world-famous institutional investor. They own airports and roads and all kinds of infrastructure. They would like to be your electricity supplier. Hmm. And that competition between sources of capital means that the monopoly position of the utilities is coming to an end, and we're going to have a much more competitive and much more disrupted market. It'll be fun.
0: Yeah, I bet the utilities weren't expecting that to come from teachers.
1: (laughs) The teachers are coming. The teachers are coming.
0: (laughs) Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And thanks to all of you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts, wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. A special thanks to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast for assisting with this recording. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.